After almost three years in the creation process, my book, The Spirit of Work, Timeless Wisdom, Current Realities, is making its publishing debut end of April 2022. By interweaving science, business, and sacred texts from the world's great spiritual traditions, The Spirit of Work offers a high-level but approachable way to view and structure work from individual, community, and institutional perspectives. I will be adding some solo podcasts to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast to give you a taste of what the book is like and to whet your appetite for more. When the April countdown to publication starts, there will be weekly live sessions, book readings, and prize draws you will definitely not want to miss. To get in on the VIP launch and get your advanced reader copy of Chapter 6, Why You Need Your Heart to Work, go to shiftworkplace.co slash bookvip. That's shiftworkplace.co slash bookvip. Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Today, I'm very excited to present to you Robert Mandelson. He works as a workshop facilitator and certified career counselor of Powerful Play Experiences, Positive Workplace Mental Health for Teams. For almost 15 years, he's been traveling throughout Alberta, facilitating team development workshops, both in person and online, with amazing fun, energy, happiness, and joy. There's no sit and listen stand and deliver PowerPoint presentations here. It's all about the action. Robert's message is simple. Business leaders step up, embrace the value of fun at work, and building a culture of highly engaged and happy teams. The number one strategy to raise positive mental health levels is to have fun. And we need to prioritize our daily mental health, both at work and in our lives. As an avid mental health champion, Robert is quite comfortable sharing his own personal story of living with and managing depression and anxiety. His goal is to be a role model for men everywhere who really need to get comfortable with talking about their daily mental health and to get the help and support they need. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Marie, I am absolutely thrilled to be here today. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm thrilled to interview you too, because only one other person in my life, that's my whole life who has the level of enthusiasm that you have. And I hope you meet her someday. (laughs) She's also an amazing facilitator. And I think the two of you are just the top of the top for enthusiasm. And I love it. Well, make it happen. I have to introduce the two of you. So that was the formal part. Uh, Please tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, first of all, thank you very much for that wonderful, wonderful introduction. I'm actually quite honored to be me after listening to that introduction. (laughs) I'm feeling pretty good about myself. That's great. Well, I'm just an interesting, creative kind of guy. I use my creativity in all aspects of my life, but especially in work. I've created a, a business for myself, oh, about 15 years ago. That is so eloquently called a powerful play experiences, positive workplace mental health for teams. And you did mention that in the intro. Thank you very much. So as a workshop facilitator, I'm all about fun at work. I'm all about happy at work. I'm all about team engagement. It's my belief. And I know you and I, Marie, often talk about beliefs that drive our actions in life. I'm of the belief that if we incorporate more fun at work, more happy at work, more joy, more team engagement, you know what, Marie? That's just good mental health. That's just good positive workplace mental health. I'm on a mission, Marie, 
I really hope to inspire workplaces, especially during these crazy COVID times, to embrace the value of fun at work and really think about how increasing fun levels and play levels in the workplace is just a simple, effective, and cost-free strategy to really shift the energy and really shift people's mental health levels in the workplace. But Robert, how did you get to that point? I mean, were you always the fun-loving kid when you were little, or how did you get there? Would you like the uh, Cole's Notes version sure. or the long version? Cole's Notes, because I have 10 more questions to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not surprised that as an adult, I've turned to play and fun at work as part of my career. Uh, I grew up in Montreal in a uh, Jewish neighborhood, being that I'm Jewish. And I was surrounded by many, many Jewish boys and girls my own age, lots of kids, lots of Jewish kids in the neighborhood. And all we knew at that time was to play out on the streets together, to play at the park together, to play at the schoolyard together, to play on the monkey bars together, to grab our bikes and just bike anywhere together. So play was a huge part and influenced me greatly growing up as a little Jewish boy in Montreal in the friendly confines of a Jewish neighborhood. And that storyline has stayed with me all the way throughout my life. So it came as no surprise to me that when I walked into the guidance counselor's office in my final year of high school, and I said to her, listen, I'm on the cusp of graduating from high school, and I have no idea what I'd like to pursue post high school. And she said, well, what do you like to do? I said, well, I love the subject that we call gym because we get to play. So she says, I've got a preferred future for you worth considering. How about community recreation leadership? And you know, Maria, I had no idea what that was at that time. But this guidance counselor, whose name was Miss Oosterhoff at my high school in grade 11, she said, I'm going to set you up with a particular program at Dawson College in Montreal. Go visit the program for a day. And she was well ahead of her time. She was almost setting up something like a job shadow. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's had that kind of good experience from a guidance counselor in high school. I often think back to Miss Oosterhoff, who was so ahead of her time, just by considering the idea of putting me right in the environment at Dawson College, right with the students in the community recreation leadership training program for a day. Did you go? Of course I went. How could I not? (laughs) Sending me to a college in Montreal, suggesting that I can pursue a program of study where I got to play for three years and learn all about the occupation of recreation leader. And you're going to love this part of the story. So guess who comes along with me on that journey that day, Marie? Hmm, I don't know, your mother? Yeah, exactly, my mother. What every Jewish little boy needs is his mother to come with him to one of the most important days in his life, which is to check out a college program, which could set the tone for the rest of his life. Does this go along with the whole helicopter parent thing or? Well, I'm not sure if we called it a helicopter parent at that time. Maybe she was just being a good Jewish mother at that time. Uh, Yes. And you know what, Marie? I fell in love with the program immediately. And for three years, uh, community recreation leadership training, Dawson College. I then pursued recreation and leisure studies at Concordia University in Montreal. So five and a half years of education both at the college and university level. I was cut out to play, apparently. This is your calling. And you know what? It's not like I didn't know that. 
I knew that. I knew that. And it was consciously there right in front of me. It wasn't something I had to dig deep for and figure out. I just needed a Miss Oosterhoff to say, oh, there's a program of study. You can actually pursue play as a career, which I didn't know at that time. And uh, any job that I've had in my life, any job, any career that I've had has always incorporated some form of play. I've worked with Boys and Girls Clubs of Edmonton, which is all about working with some very challenging areas of our city where uh, children and youth need safe places to come play. I've worked West Ham and Tamal Promotions, which was all about play. I've worked in ride parks, uh, water parks, uh, youth centers. It's all about play. I am glad I asked you this question because I didn't know that history, and it's really great. You know, people think I woke up one day and (laughs) invented powerful play experiences off the cuff. It hasn't been that way at all. It's no, you been, grew into it. Yeah, that's it. I yeah. grew into it. Very well said. Let's go straight into your childhood then. Can you think of a couple of incidents from your childhood that made you into the person you are today? Well, I was very, very blessed. And I knew it at that time. It wasn't something that I figured out later on in life. But I was truly blessed with the opportunity to live in what I would call the friendly confines of a Jewish neighborhood shared values, you know, shared beliefs, shared interests, a lot of commonalities amongst the Jewish families in the neighborhood. And we all lived in duplexes. So we weren't, you know, upper class, we weren't lower class, we were kind of hovering around middle class. But just the friendly confines of a Jewish neighborhood allowed me that opportunity to feel safe in my relationships and friendships with others. Can you think of a specific incident that stands out in your mind from your childhood? Okay, so... It was the time at age 12, early into 13 years of age. At that time, my father and mother decided to move us away outside of a Jewish neighborhood. And I jokingly say 30 to 40 minutes down the Trans-Canada Highway, heading west away from Montreal into what is known as the West Island into the town of Kirkland, a very new community at that time, where there was not a Jew in sight. That was hugely impactful for myself, my brother, and my sister, to move away from the safety and security of a Jewish neighborhood into a non-Jewish neighborhood. And that started a whole different type of life journey, because now I was meeting people whose understanding of Judaism and Jewish people, their words weren't very kind. No. Yeah. And uh, so to move from the friendliness and security of a Jewish neighborhood to a neighborhood where that didn't exist, it changed me dramatically. I now had to be a little more private and not as public about my Jewish faith, my Jewish practices, for fear that there would be a consequence. And that might have been either, we didn't call it at that time, but verbal abuse or physical abuse. Mm -hmm. So it changed a lot at that time. Effective religious prejudice. And people have assumptions about a religion that's not their own. And then they seek to stomp it out. And the interesting piece to all of that is that aside, what still brought the kids together in that new neighborhood in the town of Kirkland, we all had moved into this area, this new housing development in around the same time within a six month period. It was play that brought us all together, regardless of your faith, your religion, where you had come from, your nationality. It was play on the streets that brought everybody together. So everything could be put aside because play was the thing 
that everybody shared in common and everybody understood. And it was easy. It was fun. And it built community. Yeah, it's natural for children to play. There's no instance of children not playing. They make everything into play. And that's how they negotiate the world. And that's how they learn about everything is through play. Right. That's how we all became more comfortable with our differences. All of us lacked experiences with each other's country of origin, religion, you know, family traditions. But it was through play. That's where your best learnings you know, occurred about one another. That's where you truly made an emotional connection. And just through the common experiences of play, that you were able to better see yourself as not being different, as being more like the same of your neighbor. The family that lived next door to us on one side of our home were very racially motivated. But there was a significant change over the course of the years that we lived in Kirkland. And the family, especially the father of the household, changed colors dramatically. And he and my father became like brothers. You know, I can't recall how that transpired. But upon my father's death years back, our neighbor, the father of the household, was absolutely devastated. It was like losing a brother. And this was the family who initially we had to be very careful with, you know, a little bit uneasy with because of some of their own beliefs towards Jewish people. So you know, that's just really hopeful to think that people can over time and through exposure and through seeing the children grow up together, start to form bonds of friendship that erase racial prejudice. Isn't that hopeful? You know, that's amazing what you just said, because maybe I didn't know that at that time, but it was through the adults of the household, both families, watching the children and observing the children find their way together that influenced the adults to sort of rethink their own different positions around the two different households. Is that kind of what you're suggesting yeah, here? Yeah, I really like it because people tend to self-segregate, but when they can't, they are forced to learn from each other because they don't have other people to associate with. And so then these connections form. So it's really interesting, those two experiences that you had, feeling of belonging to a particular group and then the feeling of being on the outside, but finding a way through play to build relationships. I think Socrates said this, I can learn more about a man from one hour of play than from 10 years of philosophical discussion. And that can be applied to the world of work. I could learn more about my coworkers, you know, through one hour of fun at work, play at work workshops than I can by segregating myself into my cubicle and just relating to my coworkers on one level. And that is through getting the work that needs to get done. Once we invite each other to the sandbox and uh, we bring our pail and shovel along and we all get into the sandbox together to build sandcastles, the energy is different. There's more collaboration. There's more respect. There's more sharing. There's more inventing or creating more uh, shared decision making, shared problem solving, all because we're in a sandbox together with our pail and shovel building sandcastles together. I don't know if kids actually go into the sandbox anymore with a pail and shovel. They do. I witnessed it last year with my grandson, who was then three, he's now four. And we went to the park together while I was holding his newborn baby brother, and he was trying to negotiate playing in the sand uh, in the schoolyard. And it was recess. And so the grade two kids came out to, for their recess and all in masks because it was still, it was beginning of COVID. 
And I mean, he had a pail and shovel and they had tools that they were using too. And he stood there and they looked at him and said, would you like to play with us, little dude? And he said, yeah. I mean, his French is great. His English was not so great. And they didn't speak any French, but he understood that they were inviting him to play. And they were burying each other's hands in the sand and then pretending they couldn't get out which was a concept that totally escaped him because it was quite obvious they could get out. And then they were trying to train him in how to play this game, but he wasn't at that developmental level yet. But they were so kind to him and encouraging. And they kept saying, oh, we'll show you how, or let us help you. And he was just completely included in the game. And he felt so much like he was a part of this whole play initiative. Then they said at the end when the bell rang, you know what, little dude, when you get older, you're going to understand how to play even better. And then we'll play some more. Wow. Beautiful. And let's pull out the beauty of that, right? It was not just an invitation, but an invitation to the dude, the little dude. Little dude. You're like part of our group. You're a little dude. Yes, the part of the inclusion, right? Uh, Come join in. Be Be part of this experience with us. Yeah, they threw out the welcome mat for him. They did. To come play his way and be part of the experience. And that's a beautiful story on so many levels. When you were telling this story, you know, I thought back to growing up in this Jewish neighborhood in Montreal. And then you mentioned French and English as well. Living in Montreal meant living with one official language and maybe one less of official language, but two languages, French and English. So a couple of buddies of mine and myself, we'd stroll to the park. And just by virtue of playing on the swings, playing on the teeter-totter, or playing on the slides, that play experience invited new people into your life, new kids into your life. So kids from other parts of the neighborhood arrived at the park. We arrived at the park from another part of the neighborhood. So strangers We're kind of meeting up at the park. Everyone arrived as strangers, but through the invitation to play, everybody left as friends. And I love what you said at the end. Say that again. What was said to him at the end? At the end, they said, when you're older, you'll understand how to play even better. And then we'll play some more. Wow. So kindness. He was flooded with kind, not flooded. He was. Uh, He was, you know... The contrast with my childhood, which was not at all safe like that, it really triggered me to see that because I kept thinking how much more confident I would have been had I even once been invited into a game. And perhaps I didn't know how to negotiate it. Like my grandson just took one step at a time, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. And by the time he'd taken five steps, they noticed he was there and then they invited him and then he took another step and then they said, come on. And then he took another step and then he was in, right? I don't think I knew how to negotiate that. Don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) Well, no, the reason I'm saying that is because my mother was so worried about us being poisoned by the other children who were all different religions from us on our street. She never allowed us to play with them. So my brother and my sister and I, we didn't know how to negotiate playing with people that we weren't related to, right? But my grandson does know that. It really was an interesting contrast, but let's get back to you. So I really enjoy this whole piece about play, and I haven't explored that with any of my podcast guests so far, so I'm thinking this is so exciting. But from the groups you were born into, and you've already mentioned being born into a Jewish neighborhood, into a bilingual part, perhaps multilingual neighborhood. So the groups that you were born into, what's influenced your sense of culture and self now? Today as an adult? Yeah. How has being Jewish influenced your sense of self? How has growing up in a safe neighborhood influenced your 
sense of like how have those groups that you belong to that just were automatically in your life? How did that influence who you are? I say something quite often when I share with others that I'm of the Jewish faith or that I'm Jewish. A close friend of mine caught me. <laughs> he said, you know, Rob, you often say that you're just a little bit Jewish. And I said, do I? Do I say that? And he was correct. When I talk about being born a Jew, I'll often say, oh, I'm just a little bit Jewish. So I've had to sit back and reflect on why I am saying that and what are the influences that have taken place from those early years of living in a Jewish neighborhood to now that have changed the way that I think of myself as being a Jew. And I'll always be the first to acknowledge Jewish holidays and the cultures and the traditions, but I'll also be the first to not practice them. I'll always be the first to, with enthusiasm, tell others that a very dear cousin of mine is a well-respected rabbi in Israel, but I'll also be the first to say that I know nothing more about him, you know, and exactly, you know, who he is and how he practices Judaism in Israel. So I'm almost a contradiction. Well, don't you think that skepticism is part of the Jewish way of thinking? (laughs) Well said. But I say that because I'm not sure how to answer the question. A sense of rootedness, a sense of tradition. Um, I'm just guessing. You tell me if I'm on the right track. A sense that at any point the world can turn against you. Wow. I've never uh, framed it into that type of uh, language, those types of words. But absolutely, I can see that the act of pulling our family out of the safety and security of a Jewish neighborhood into a non-Jewish neighborhood resulted in me, and I, I say this loosely, you know, kind of looking over your shoulder and not sure of what lies ahead. And that's been the experience of, of Jews for hundreds of years. <laughs> and you know what? Thank you for that. And I don't feel guilty about feeling that way. When I moved to Alberta just over 25 years ago, I was very private about being born a Jew. I didn't know, I didn't understand fully what the culture was like out here around the acceptance of different, something different. And whatever thoughts I had about Edmonton, Alberta, or understanding of it was based on what I saw or heard on TV. And uh, so I was very leery about coming forth and sharing my Judaic background uh, here in Alberta. It took a number of years for me to even feel comfortable to say, I'm a Jew. You know, from the East, many people have said when they come to Alberta that they thought there is nobody in Alberta but a bunch of close-minded rednecks. But guess what? We had the first Jewish and the first Muslim mayors. Yes. And we have the highest rate of interracial and interfaith marriages in Canada, in Calgary. And so there may be, and we can certainly find evidence of a lot of very close-minded redneck um, people, very strongly attached to small beliefs about who they can be and who everybody else can be. And at the same time, we have a very expansive and accepting culture. So it's like the two contradictions. We, We do now. We might not have had that here in Edmonton, Alberta, in and around 1985 or 86. No. Right? But we do now. You know, so... I mean, I'm not Jewish, but my first experience with Judaism was when I was playing the piano. And Mm -hmm. 
I was entered into a piano festival a duet competition. And I was set up with a duet partner who was Jewish. And we used to practice at his home because he had a beautiful grand piano. So to see sort of Judaic culture, um, things around the house. Also, it was a social class experience because this was a very wealthy family and we were not uh, wealthy. So it was that whole piece was extremely marking for me. Like I remembered it very strongly. And then my mother, which is so odd kept making all these inferences that I would marry this little boy at some point, and to which his mother reacted in complete horror. (laughs) 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 And the experience of the horror of his mother was pretty graphic in my mind. And it's it's really, also my mother seemed, that was a very unexpected behavior. It was not expecting my mother to do that. So it was my very first experience at age eight of meeting a Jewish family. Do you know today as an adult if they were Orthodox Jews, conservative, reform, Lubavitch? Judaism had multi-levels. Well, they would not have been Orthodox or I don't think they would have had me come into their home to play duets with their son. So I expect they were probably more on the liberal side, maybe reform. But yeah. And let's go back to you. I keep getting default going back to this other pieces from my childhood that I didn't remember. (laughs) Um, Because the groups that we belong to have influenced us and we can't really divorce ourselves from that. I used to work with a a Persian facilitator who said to me, I'm just a little bit Persian, really. I'm really Canadianized. And I said, you know, you can't divorce yourself from your history. Your history is your foundation. It's influencing you whether you like it or not. It's better to just say, where's the influence and how attached am I to that influence? And we had lots of discussions about that. And it was very interesting to see how we work together from those two Mm -hmm. different standpoints. So you adopted groups. I mean, you adopted just the profession that you're in and recreation and uh, recreation leadership. But that's just one. I don't know many others that you've had. What have you adopted into who you are that isn't part of what you you grew up in? My childhood and during my teenage years, you know, kind of dating myself here, but I was born in 1960. And those early childhood years, I knew that our immediate family and our extended family wasn't healthy mentally. Now, of course, I'm using those terms today, which I didn't use back then. I was very much influenced by the grouping called mental illness. My family on both sides and all of their brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and such, plenty of mental illness on both sides. So while I was growing up as one part a Jew, uh, growing up one part, this kid who just gravitated to play and community and friendships, I was also growing up with the understanding that there was a sickness or an illness in our family. And the, the language at that time was not very kind. It was not very appropriate, you know, against today's standards. So I've taken that experience to my adulthood today and needed to find a place of comfort and peacefulness with my own mental illness. I live with and manage depression and anxiety, and I'm pretty good at managing it. But there's times that maybe I'm not so good at managing it, but over, I'm, I'm pretty good. But I want to take that experience that was highly impactful negatively on me as a child and look at it today and how we can reshape the language and the conversation around mental illness. Because today, uh, there's a whole push towards appropriate conversation, appropriate language, 
that I didn't experience as a child. Are there groups associated with living with mental illness that you feel you identified with or learned something from? I just want to say something, and maybe you can help me kind of weave it into the conversation. When you say groups, what keeps coming to mind is like I'm formally joining a group or I'm part of a group in a very formal kind of way. I don't think that's what you're asking me. I know I'm not, although it could be. You know, sometimes people go into, for example, recently I keep hearing about people joining this inclusive sport called pickleball. And, you know, they're very influenced by the culture of pickleball. So that's an interest. People sometimes gravitate towards learning another language and they become involved with the language and the culture of the language. And that becomes a part of who they are and how they understand themselves and professional groups. So, for example, there is that group that would be recreational leadership is a professional designation and grouping and people in that profession think and act a certain way. And that may have influenced you as well. So that's kind of where I'm going with this. Does that help? Okay, perfect. So come back to what you said to me earlier about groups that you associated with later as an adult that you feel are part of who you are now. Okay. What uh, And what I meant was come back to those other words you said earlier that sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I said, wow, I've never really thought of it that way. Like being Jewish and being a little bit um, fearful about being Jewish. And you used a phrase with me that just stopped me in my tracks, you know, to suggest that I'm always looking over my shoulder. I think it was something around the idea that at any moment, the world could turn against you. Thank you. That's it. Perfect. So, wow. <laughs> now I can make a connection to groupings. So that whole need for more kindness in the world and kindness in our community, a kindness in our neighborhood and kindness in our family is motivated because of what you just said a minute so, ago. You know, that is very powerful. This desire for kindness and to bring kindness to feel kindness and to encourage kindness. Yes. But because of what you said a few minutes ago, say it one more time. Feeling that at any moment the world can turn against you. Wow. Once you helped me better articulate an idea around a grouping as not being something, a formal grouping or an alliance with the group. And once I understood that, kindness came to mind immediately. Just an aside, and we'll come back to what we're sharing here, just an aside, when people ask me, what is the number one reason why businesses request your services for a powerful play experiences workshop, you know, lots of fun, lots of play, lots of happy. My response always is, no matter what the team leader said to me in regards to the reasons why such as, well, we need to uh, be, be we need to communicate better. We, we need to better support one another. We need to be more effective at getting the work done. At the end of the day, for 15 years now, the number one reason why everybody calls me to do a workshop is because they want more kindness in their workplace. Oh, that's beautiful. Because underneath all that other stuff, the stuff that is like sandpaper rubbing against each other, Underneath all of that, people just want kindness in the workplace. And I've been blessed over the past couple of years. Well, now that COVID, you know, is in front of us, behind us, next to us and everywhere to be online and meet some wonderful, wonderful leaders in the field of kindness in the workplace. But it stems from what you said a minute ago when I thought about, well, what are those informal groups 
or ideas. Where am I linked? Who am I linked to based on my values? I thought, kindness. I could not not think about that statement of yours. It's because we need to live in a kind world. That's if we're in a kind world, we all feel safe. That's we it. feel encouraged. That's it. We feel that's acknowledged. And we feel secure in our ability to do the same for others. And that's your, the little dude going into the sandbox. Yeah, sure, little dude, come and play. Totally, totally. Literally, tsunami of kindness, right? And all differences aside, step into the sandbox with us and feel included. And bring your kindness. And alongside our kindness, we will have an abundance of kindness going on here in the sandbox. Mm, very nice. You're always surprising me with things. And nobody has ever answered the question that way. And I, I love it because it is a grouping and it's an attraction of people who want more kindness and to promote kindness. And that, that is significant. I'm wondering how that plays out in the difference between your temperament, which you were born with, and your personality, which you grew into. You know, wow. some kids are naturally kind. And some kids are naturally assertive. And some kids are naturally brilliant at taking apart machines and putting them back together. So what would you say you were born with that's just natural for you? It's not born with it, uh, very much influenced by my mother was and always is an extremely kind individual, respecting the fact that she does live with manic depression, issues around OCD, and high anxiety. But below all that, there's a wonderfully kind mother. My number one recollection of my mother growing up is her, <laughs> here we are living in a Jewish neighborhood and uh, duplexes surrounding the community. And if there was a lost dog <laughs> anywhere out on the street, my mother was chasing that dog. <laughs> she needed to rescue that dog and find the owner. And there I was behind her chasing my mother, chasing the dog, because you know what? It was just the right thing to do. This is what you do. This is what you do. The, the dog is in a state of crisis, right? And, and we need to help the dog. And that's just the kind thing to do. You just do that. Right. And I can now see just through this conversation together, you and I, how uh, kindness was very much nurtured and part of the fabric of the Jewish community. But I found it to be lost when I stepped outside the community. Here I am as an adult. My message is, regardless of your community, regardless who makes up that community, we're all deserving of kindness. Everyone deserves kindness, regardless of those, the differences in community. And that truly impacts my thinking as to why I do what I do around powerful play experiences. My promotional message online is about mental health, but behind it all, it's more kindness in the workplace. You took your early experiences with kindness and with a disposition of tenderness to an explicit level where you were able to say, this is my mission and this is what other people need and I'm going to create a life that brings it to the world. And to bring that forth through play. Yeah. So play has become the vehicle. So again, coming back to little dude, that whole story, you know, reeked of kindness. It was all about kindness and play was the catalyst to inspire kindness amongst everyone. Well, I'm going to have to rethink my whole business marketing plan here. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. So my grandson is black and the little boys that were inviting him to play were white. And I am always kind of on alert in case somebody does something racist. Yeah. 
and there was nothing to be on alert for. It was entirely being immersed in kindness. It was lovely. Gives you hope. So you already described it because moving from your neighborhood in Montreal to the other neighborhood, you had kind of a culture shock. Can you think of another time in your life when your experience of life became obvious to you that that was just your culture, maybe your family culture, could be Jewish culture, could have been neighborhood culture, when that sort of became really obvious to you that what you understood and how you knew the world was specific to culture and not just what everybody did. You know, when I moved to Alberta in 85 or 86, maybe it was my ignorance, maybe it was just lack of experience or knowledge or education of the First Nations community. My knowledge of the First Nations community was extremely limited. I didn't know that at that time. I didn't know until I stepped outside of Quebec and arrived here in Alberta how ignorant my knowledge was of the First Nations community because I moved here to see homeless First Nations people. And I remember first seeing homeless First Nations people on Jasper Avenue. My mind parachuted back to Quebec and what I understood of the Aboriginal people, you know, at that time. And, you know, I I had to catch myself and say, whoa, (laughs) I just don't know enough. I'm just not knowledgeable. You know, I lack experience and I need to jump into this new province made up of people who don't necessarily look like or sound like the people in Quebec. And I need to be open to understanding the cultural experiences that are taking place here in Alberta and better understand what's around me. I pat myself on the back for making the transition or making a transition from Quebec to Alberta. That's in itself is not common for an Anglophone or a Francophone in Quebec to move to Alberta. Each province has their own very specific political views. But I made the transition. And you know what? I am blessed that I have because it's opened up like a whole new range of experiences for a higher level of appreciation specific to First Nations people. And I'm excited and thrilled and feeling more positive about what's happening today here in Alberta and across Canada around the changes that need to be made. So I hope I answered the question. Was that sort of a culture shock experience? Was experiencing First Nations in a homeless situation? Or was it experiencing a homeless situation? Or did it have something to do with your experience with uh, Indigenous peoples in Quebec had nothing to do with homelessness? Like, I'm trying to figure out what that link is for you. Well, I, I had a very narrow understanding of First Nations people. It was only based on what I saw on TV and read in the papers. But that's uh, a small percent of First Nations people who live on the street. Exactly. So I had to sit down and teach myself or have a conversation with myself and come to a conclusion that I just Mm -hmm. don't understand. But I'm here. I'm making Alberta my home. It's time for me to fully understand and appreciate what's around me, though it looks different and sounds different at that time. I need to understand this beyond the knowledge and experiences that I'm bringing from Quebec. So it was really an awareness of feeling that there was a void of understanding. I hope to answer your question around the idea of of the transition from one part of Canada to the another part of Canada. And you bring your set of values, you bring your set of interests, you bring your skills and, you know, it's all shaped and formed in a particular way. And then you sort of parachute into this other location in Canada, so many time zones away. And it's like, wow, this doesn't look anything like I know. And here I was once again, transitioning away from a place of familiarity 
like I had done as a child, moving from a Jewish neighbor to a non-Jewish neighborhood. In a sense, I had the ability to make the transition because I had gone through that before. But I did. It, it, the community here looked the same. It sounded the same until I began to become more uh, connected to the community through work and uh, work experiences, I began to understand that I needed to become more knowledgeable, more experienced in what's around me, because I'm just not as knowledgeable as I think I am. It may also have been a clash of social class, because there's a big social class gap between somebody who grew up in the suburbs and someone who's living on the street. And social class is the hardest thing to negotiate. And it's chasms of difference. So it could have been when you start to dissect that experience a bit more on a number of levels, it can be insightful. We're getting to the end of the interview. So what makes a perfect business relationship for you where you can be your best self? What brings out the best in you when you're working with a client? You know, Marie, I'm going to let you answer that for me. You tell me. <laughs> what will create levels of happy with Robert in his relationship with clients? What do you think? You've known me for many years now and more so during this conversation. So you tell us. I'm, again, struck by the fact that nobody's ever asked me that question. So I'm going to say in response that an invitation to play on both sides would be a great way to have a business relationship with you. And as a result of play, what's taking place in the relationship? Again, think about little dude going into the sandbox. I think you would want to feel safe and you would want to feel that you could be your authentic self without having to make any apologies. Did I get that right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The relationship would be nurtured around kindness, care for one another, respect, an openness to each other's differences a celebration of each other's differences, an okayness with just being authentic and being who you are. And something we've done a lot of during this conversation, we've chuckled a lot. We've laughed a lot. That is hugely, hugely important. And I was going to say for me, but I know that that's hugely important for all of us. And if we just sit back and admit that to ourselves, that we need a little more laughter, a little more smiles, a little more happy in our life, we just might be able to maneuver through some of these COVID stressors just a little bit better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah. So here's your soapbox moment. What you like to promote? Listen, no one person is immune to the many challenges we are all facing in regards to the crazy COVID experience. The question really is, how comfortable are you in looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, you know what? I need to add a little more self-care to my life. And I need to add a little more self-care to my team's life, my team at work. And we need to step back from all the crazy that is the world of work, the crazy that is the COVID experience, and catch our breath and pause and give ourselves a mental health break and have some fun together at work and play at work and change the energy and change the culture of the team. If not for two, one hour, two hours, three hours, a full day. And one of the best ways to do that is to throw me into the group. <laughs> because <laughs> all my toys and all my fun. You've got skills, man. Well, that's a great way for us to get to the end of the interview. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I want to say thank you to you. <laughs> 
You know how much I appreciate you. You do know that. Well, I sure do now. You've said it so many times. I'm definitely (laughs) taking it to heart. There's been a huge gap of time that we haven't connected. But, you know, it's almost like we haven't missed a beat since we've reconnected. And you're equally as amazing today as when I first met you 10 or 15 years ago. And don't you forget it. And that's what I want to say. Oh, thank you. That really makes my day. Let me tell you, it really does. So I'd like to thank you for being a guest on the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast, Robert, and for bringing so much joy to our listeners and to me. Well, thank you very, very much. And uh, send lots of money to Marie. Just send her lots of money. That's all she really wants. Send her lots of money. (laughs) And the same for Robert. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Robert Mandelson grew up in a Jewish-Canadian family in Eastern Canada, playing with the neighborhood kids and organizing games. He came to Western Canada as he pursued recreational studies and a career in recreational facilitation, always looking for ways to bring play and joyfulness to people's work through creative team building. Robert's pursuit of play has been helpful in his own life as he struggled to overcome mental illness and people naturally resonate with his story and approach. This honesty about his own struggles and the power of play has become part of Robert's mission to improve mental health in workplaces everywhere. More and more, we are recognizing the power of creative play, game, and sport for strong teams and healthy companies. I loved Robert's authentic, joyful, and enthusiastic interview and encourage you to check out his website, powerfulplay.ca, for ways to connect with him and his excellent work. Do you have a network of friends you could send this episode to? Share the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast episodes on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tag me, Marie Gervais, on your post. You will be sent a link to download our very delicious Culture and Leadership Connections cookbook as a thank you for helping us spread the word. Thanks for listening, and may Culture and Leadership Connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much.